0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 1. We're going to be looking at Psalm 1 this evening. We started this actually last week. We looked at the first part. There are three statements made in the Psalms about what not to do. And there's a statement made about what we do need to do. I see a few new faces here this week that weren't here last Sunday night when we started this sermon. So I'm going to preach last week's sermon all over again. No, I'm just joking. I won't do that to you. I won't do that to you. But I do want to just read the psalm in its entirety. I normally wouldn't do that, but for those who are here with us for the first time this evening, I think I'll just read it. If you would, just look with me. We'll read it. And then we'll ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His Word, and then we'll get down to work. Look with me. Psalm 1. We're beginning a series through the book of Psalms. There's 150 psalms. It's taken us two weeks to do Psalm 1, so we're looking at like six or seven years in the book of Psalms. God willing, we'll we'll do it much faster than that. But our current pace so far isn't too promising. Let's read and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. Psalms 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And we looked at those... Those three things last week. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates by day and by night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. We thank You for Your Psalms, Lord. We thank You, Lord, for this hymnal of Israel in which Your Spirit moved to inspire several different authors to compose these beautiful, rich songs that teach us about You, that teach us about ourselves, and that teach us about life and how You work in this world to bring people to knowing You through Your Son. Father, we just pray, Lord, as we look at this psalm tonight, that it would be our desire and that we would make it our habit, Lord, as we leave here today to meditate upon Your Word. We love You, God, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I uh, have with me here a copy of our hymnal that you will find in the back of the pew in front of you. I, As we're working our way through the Psalms, I thought it would be interesting just to look at the hymnal and uh, just to kind of peruse it and see how they put this hymnal together. I don't know if you've ever done this. Um, if you flip the hymnal open, you don't have to. Just You can just listen if you'd like. The introduction is interesting. They make this statement, the uh, individuals who put this thing together, John Peterson and Norman Johnson, they say this volume, Praise Our Songs and Hymns, is designed to foster the warmth, fervor, and all the other positive aspects associated with the spirit of praise. Its purpose is, above all, to bring together many forms of musical expression in the hope of deepening the two-way relationship between ourselves and our Maker and you skip down a little ways, and they make the statement, hymnody, of course, has developed through the centuries because of a compelling need for believers to respond, now notice this, to respond emotionally, artistically, and intellectually to the gracious and loving God that they have come to know. So their purpose in putting the hymnal together is to gather music, various selections of song that we could sing in order to respond emotionally to the Lord. That's no different than the God-inspired psalms that have been gathered together for us here in the book of Psalms. So with that in mind, what psalm would you choose to kick it off? What's your introductory psalm, hymn? How would you, if this is a book that you're compiling together here in 1979, if you're putting this book together, and you're thinking to yourself, how do I lead God's people into what I hope to be a rich collection of songs that they would be able to respond emotionally to the Lord above? What would be the first hymn that you would choose? John Peterson and Norman Johnson chose for their first one. Number Hymn number one, everybody sing praise to the Lord. They want us to respond emotionally to the Lord. And emotions are a powerful thing. Psalm 1, the song that the psalmist wants us to sing, as he's introducing the Psalter, says emotions are a powerful thing. He makes this statement, our delight. That is the thing we get joy from. The the thing that produces happiness. The righteous person's delight, look at what it says here, this is in verse 2, is in... The law of the Lord. So, as he introduces Israel's hymnal, as the Spirit inspiring the collection of this together, the Psalms, as he's putting this together, the Spirit wants us to understand that our delight, the thing that we draw joy from, should be from the law or the instruction or the teaching of God. And he makes this statement, the righteous person will meditate on it by day and by night. And so that's what we're called to do. It's not simply a matter of knowing the Bible. Pharisees and Sadducees knew their Bible. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the guys that were in charge of Israel's religious establishment, they knew their Bible. They knew it forwards and backwards. But the issue here is not simply knowing the Bible. The issue here is not simply studying the Bible, but meditating upon it in such a way that we would draw our delight, and our happiness from it. The principal difference, if you look, I I mean, as as the psalmist is trying to draw out the differences between righteous people and wicked people, the principal difference, the way he illustrates that, is found in the metaphors that come at the end of the psalm. Look in verse 3. The righteous person. Now, he's just finished talking about the righteous person. The righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, okay? So that's what the righteous person is like. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now verse 4 shows us a different metaphor for the wicked person. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. They are not what? They don't prosper. The wicked don't prosper. What does that mean exactly? Because if you look around, you see wickedness prospering everywhere. It always seems to be the individual who cheats gets ahead. The individual who steals gets more money. The individual who lies gets away with the crime. The psalmist is saying that the righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water and all he does, he prospers. The wicked person, not so. But to the naked eye, it looks like the wicked person does prosper. The wicked person is not like a tree. The wicked person, like the tree that prospers, the wicked person does not prosper. The description is of the wicked person offered to us here in verse 4, the metaphor that the psalmist uses, he says he is like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff being that part of the the stalk, the husk, when you're beating out wheat, you want to keep the grain, but the the stalk, the part that you don't eat, you, you let go of that. So the psalmist is drawing a distinction here. A righteous person does prosper, For the righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water. When external circumstances get hot, when there's a drought, when there's a scorching heat wave, the righteous person is the type of person that, like a tree, has sunk his roots down deep, down below the surface, down where there's water below. And regardless of whatever the external circumstances are, regardless of whatever the season looks like, the righteous person still prospers. But the wicked person, and you'll notice he doesn't say that the wicked person is like a smaller tree. It's an entirely different plant altogether. He switches from tree to wheat. The wicked person isn't even like wheat. It's like the chaff that you want to beat away from the wheat. It's The stuff that you don't want. It doesn't even have the weight of moisture in it. It's just the dry husk that Blows away in the wind. A difference here is not a difference of degree. It's not a difference of degree. It's not that you as a wicked person can try harder and eventually you can turn yourself from a wicked person into a godly person any more than chaff, at some point in time, if it just tries really hard, could become a tree. The difference between a godly person and a wicked person is not a question of degree, it's a question of kind entirely. A righteous person, in essence, is something entirely different than a wicked person. Now, it makes this statement, and all that he does, he prospers. We're going to come back to that in a second. Look down in verse 5 the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The way that the psalm concludes, and he goes on, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way that the psalmist concludes this psalm is he's saying in the final analysis, at the end of time, when we all stand before the judgment of the Lord, the righteous... Whatever he means by this term prosper, we know this, the righteous will stand before the Lord. But the wicked will not. The wicked will not even be in the congregation of the righteous. They will be somewhere else entirely. Springing off of this metaphor of chaff that you allow the wind to drive away, the psalmist is saying the wicked will be driven away. So we come back to this question. The righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And all that he does, he prospers. And the description of the righteous person being like a tree, he clearly says that in seasons, as the cycles of life progress, the righteous person yields righteous fruit in season, he prospers. But the key to how he does that starts and ends in verse 2. The whole psalm is pointing us to verse 2, which says that the righteous person's delight, the blessed man, his delight is on the law of the Lord and it is on his law, the Lord's law, that he meditates day and night. The critical issue is meditation. That's what the psalmist is calling us to do. Now, that's kind of a scary term for some of us. Meditation, are we talking about like when those guys sit lotus position and they put their hands like this and they go, um... and they just try not to think about anything? Is that what we're talking about? Meditation, the the concept has been captured by Eastern mysticism and the Eastern religions. Um, And I'm actually quite familiar with this, not because I want to be Buddhist or anything like that, but because I have relatives who actually are Buddhist and we've had lengthy conversations about this, the idea in the Eastern concept of meditation is that you would not actually think about anything. There are two parts to the way that the human mind works. There's the logical part and there's what we would call the intuitive part. The logical part wants to take something and wants to break it down and wants to analyze it it wants to chop it up into its different components. It wants to understand how different things fit together. It wants to understand things like cause and effect. It wants to analyze. And then there's the intuitive part, which may not necessarily want to analyze anything, but kind of grasps a sense of the whole. Now, any reasoning person would want to have a grasp of the sense of the whole, but also would want to break it down into its component parts. In Eastern philosophy, Eastern mysticism, in the Eastern religions, they would emphasize the intuitive, but not tell you what they mean by that. You need to find oneness in the totality of the universe. You need to grasp the whole, which is what exactly? Well, now you're thinking too hard about it. See, you're trying to break it up and define it and dissect it. You can't do that. Well, so then what exactly is it that I'm supposed to be doing? if you've ever talked to anybody who's Buddhist or Hindu, in all of the meditation, what it boils down to is this. You want to bring a sense of peace and wellness to your soul, essentially, by not thinking about anything. That's not what we're talking about with Christian biblical meditation. The word meditate is used. We are... Slightly bothered by that based on our experience with other individuals who engage in Eastern meditation. But the Scriptures are specific. Look at what it says here. His meditation, his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The idea of Christian meditation is the exact opposite of Eastern meditation. We're not trying to empty our minds. We're actually trying to pack it full of something. We're not trying to think about nothing. We're trying to think about the Word of God. The instruction of the Lord. Now, to think about and to meditate upon the Scriptures is a very enriching thing. But it does require some effort. And I understand as I'm looking out of the room, I'm looking at people who have been Christians for like 60, 70 years. And some of what I might say tonight, will seem to you very basic and you've heard it probably a hundred times over, you know, and this is something that you've heard multiple times. And I trust that as I say some of these things tonight that you're not bored by it. I also look out the room and I see young Christians, young believers. I see people that as recently as yesterday were speaking to me about their desire to be baptized. And so for some of those people, this will be totally brand new. So I want to walk you through the actual practice of Christian meditation. I want to give you two examples. In the Bible, you're going to find several different, what we would call, genres of literature. You're going to find wisdom literature, like the Proverbs. You're going to find narrative, like Old Testament history. You'll find narrative in the New Testament as well, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts. You'll find also didactic, which is basically teaching. It's just straightforward, propositional truth. Here's what you need to know, and here's why you need to know it. Now, For our purposes tonight, I can't walk you through everything, because there's another genre of literature, apocalyptic, like Revelation, Daniel. I couldn't do justice teaching you how to meditate on those sections of Scripture tonight, so to keep this to about 30 minutes, I'm going to have to be choosy. Now, the most important thing for us, really, for those of us who are new believers, is to really pull meat from the New Testament. So there's two particular genres I want to just focus on with our time tonight, didactic and narrative. That will get you through the Gospels and the book of Acts, and I'll get you through all of the letters of the New Testament. So, I want you to leave Psalms behind. I'm going to show you how to do this. What I mean by meditation, exactly what we're talking about. I want you to flip with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. The first thing I want you to do as you begin the practice of meditation, as you begin to actually soak your mind in the Word of God, I want you to stop, find a quiet place. No distractions, Turn the phone off. Don't put it on vibrate. Turn it off, okay? We don't need to let the world intrude in our time with the Father. The world can take care of itself. The Lord is taking care of the world. We just need to focus on what the Father is saying to us. So turn the phone off. Turn the TV off. Put the computer away. Get rid of all of your distractions. Get alone. Be with the Lord. You in a quiet place by yourself with the Father. I want you to get a section of scripture. It's ideal to work your way through entire books of the Bible. So if you're going to do a quiet time, you want to start with a section of scripture. You want to work your way all the way through that particular letter, particularly as we come to didactic letters in the New Testament. You understand the Spirit inspired people to write letters. If you've ever traded emails with each other, if you've ever written actual snail mail to each other, some of you younger folks, you don't just take a letter that you receive in the mail and say, hmm, I'm just going to pick something out of the middle of it and see what that says to me. Of course you wouldn't read it that way. You'd read the whole thing start to finish in context. That's how the Spirit of God has inspired the Bible as well. So you want to actually, in your quiet time, as you're meditating on Scripture, work your way through a whole whole book of the Bible. You don't do it all in one sitting. Of course, you take it one chunk at a time. Fancy word, this is what they taught me in seminary, so here's what my whole seminary tuition went to to learn this fancy word, pericope. Sometimes you'll hear it mispronounced, pericope. That's a student that wasn't paying attention. Pericope. What that basically means, is a fancy word that says, essentially you want to take a self-contained chunk of Scripture that stands on its own. Okay, so a lot of times you'll find as you are looking at your Bible, even the editors will put these little headings in there to try and help you understand what the editors think consists of a good solid chunk, a, a standalone section, a pericope of Scripture. So we're going to look tonight. I want to show you a passage from Ephesians and a, passion, a passage from Mark. So Ephesians 1, you take something like verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. Now as you, this is didactic. This is a letter. This is a letter written by Paul specifically for the purposes of giving spiritual instruction to the church at Ephesus. So this isn't narrative, this isn't story, this is a slightly different genre. It's going to be straightforward, it's going to offer you some very powerful statements, and some of the stuff that's mentioned here is going to fly right over your head unless you slow down and you stop and you meditate on it. If you've ever gone to uh, walk through the woods, you know that as you're walking through the woods, sometimes you can get caught up on a detail looking at a particular tree. And sometimes, like my wife, she loves bugs, and we'll never get through the woods. If my wife is in control, she will want to stop and overturn every rock and look on every tree and observe every every, you know, whether it's a bug or not. She wants to look at it. Shauna's laughing. I mean that in a good, positive way. Some of you are staring at me. but I'm a I'm a hiker like we're going to go for a walk through the woods. I'm just I'm I'm trudging through. Okay, my wife's going to stop and look at everything. I'm going to get through it. I'm going to plow through it. Okay, when we look at scripture. We want to stop and we want to observe the forest. That's good. You want to get the context of the whole thing. You also want to stop to look at the trees as you're making your way through. You actually want to do both. You want to take the broad view and you also want to pick out the specifics. You want to look at the whole forest. You also want to take time to look at each little individual tree. So here's what you're going to do. You come to a particular section within the scriptures. This is didactic. It's going to be a little different when we get to narrative. But for didactic, anything that's a letter in the New Testament, you want to find a self-contained chunk of it, a self-contained uh, section of it. You want to look at the whole thing. Okay, You want to read it all the way through, start to finish. So you're going to come here to Ephesians, and you're going to, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to read Ephesians 3-14 to 14 a couple of times just to kind of get the idea in your mind what it is that Paul is saying as he's writing the church Ephesus. I'm not going to do that for you tonight. But you want to understand it, so you want to read it through a couple of times. Then you want to go back, and you want to start looking at it, verse by verse, tree by tree. So look, blessed be the God, this is verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just stop right there. That's a tree, okay? What Paul has just said is God the Father has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you want to start thinking about this critically. All of the basic interrogative questions, the who, the what, the why, the when, the where, you want to apply those to this verse. Say, who gives us all spiritual, really all spiritual blessings? What does that mean? You want to begin to soak on all of these little details. Okay, What exactly is it that Paul is saying here? The Father has given us all spiritual blessings well what what does that actually mean? You want to start to turn that phrase over in your mind because whatever it is that Paul is saying, it sounds pretty significant, okay? All spiritual blessings. you'll move on to the next tree. Verse four. look at what it says, even as he chose us in him, who chose us? Go back to verse. Three, God the Father chose us. What does that mean? He chose us before the foundation of the world. Even before I'd done anything good or done anything deserving or even before I was even created, even before I even existed, God the Father chose me and blessed me with every spiritual blessing. So you want to focus on that. What exactly does it mean there? Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption. Stop right there. Adoption. That's a powerful word. God the Father is saying that He has adopted me into His family. Just turn that over in your mind for a second. I have two beautiful, precious girls. Both adopted. And I love them to death. They are amazing. I didn't have to have them. I could have gone on living my life. Nothing forced me. I was under no obligation. I was not in any way compelled to choose my two daughters and bring them into my family. But I wanted them because they're awesome, because I love them, because they're dear to me. So even though there's like mountains and mountains of paperwork and different finds and all of this, and you have to go through numerous interviews and there's this whole placement process and they investigate every area of your life and make sure that you're not some sort of Secret, you know, pedophile child molester, you know, they really turn over every stone. You go through this whole process, it was a joy to me to have my daughters be a part of my family. Focus on words like that. You come to a word, God chose you, God predestined you, He's given you every spiritual blessing. You're turning those things over, and then you come to these really powerful words. He is adopting you into His family. That's a tree. So you want to focus on that, and we keep going. Makes a statement, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. He's doing all of these things to the praise of his own glory. Verse 7, another tree. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Notice that word, forgiveness. You get like a dictionary, a Bible Bible dictionary, one of these vines dictionaries. You look up that word, forgiveness. What is that word? You find it's also used in John chapter 4. You do a little bit of studying, you do a little bit of digging around in your notes. You notice that. The woman at the well, Jesus tells her all about himself and confronts her, and it says she goes back to the town to tell all her friends that she's just encountered the Messiah, and it makes a statement she forgot her water pot at the well. You find that the Greek word for forgetting her water pot is the same Greek word used here for forgiveness, okay? It's the idea that it's been let go of, it's been set aside, it's been left behind. And so this is another treat in Christ, talking about Jesus Christ. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness. You begin to chew, in that, chew on that word. Think about what that means. He's set it completely aside. Your sins. He's forgiven you of it. That's another treat. And we jump on down. Verse 8, He has forgiven us of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us. You think about that rich word, lavished to lavish it upon us. You keep going. Verse 9, another tree making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Come to verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Stop right there. An inheritance? Turn that word over in your mind. What does it mean to receive an inheritance? A loved one bequeaths something to you which they worked for, which they established, and they turn and they give it to you. And as we chew on this, as we meditate on this, it's saying, in Christ, God the Father is bequeathing an inheritance to us. We've been adopted. We've been predestined. We've been chosen. We've got every spiritual blessing. He is giving us an inheritance. You begin to meditate, you begin to think on that. Then you come on down a little bit further, verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be, oh, I think we've seen this before, haven't we? To the praise of His glory. Huh, that's been said twice now. Praise of His glory. You might want to underline that in your Bible as you're chewing on it, as you're meditating on it. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Well, that's three times he said that. Now, as you see these words are being repeated, they're jumping out at you. Step back and you think, okay. Got the whole picture, went through, meditated on each verse. Came back, set back, look at it again. We find on three separate occasions he makes a statement to the praise of his own glory. Well, that's significant. That's said three times there. Now you begin to pick it apart even further. You find that there are three individuals mentioned here that are all critically involved in your salvation. There's God the Father. There's God the Son. And then there's God the Spirit. God the Father chooses you. God the Son dies for you. And God the Spirit applies that salvation to your life and is himself the guarantee or the the down payment, the earnest money of our eternal salvation, our inheritance in the heavenly place. Did you know that in the early church, one of the things that they fought about quite a bit for a couple of hundred years was exactly what to make of God? I mean, they couldn't quite figure Him out. At a surface level, the Scriptures seem to indicate that there's multiple gods. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So perhaps correct belief, is that we worship three gods. Other guys came along and said, no, 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 because the Scriptures elsewhere say we just worship one. There's only one God. Well, So which is it? Is it one God or is it three gods? And then a number of different, equally crazy suggestions come along. Well, maybe it's one God who's schizophrenic, who thinks he's three gods. Well, maybe it's one God who created other gods beneath him. Well, maybe it's... Not really three, maybe it's one. And you see it goes back and forth, back and forth. And did you know that nowhere in the whole Bible is the word Trinity ever once used? Nowhere in the whole Bible is there a passage that says, listen, God is three in one. How did we arrive at that correct understanding? Meditation. You see, it's very clear if you take all of the Scriptures and you understand that God never lies and that God never, ever, ever contradicts Himself. He doesn't say one thing here and change His mind and say something different over there. That means as we understand who God is and as we bring together these statements about Himself and as we begin to really turn it over in our mind, we start to arrive at an understanding of God that is there in the text, but only available to those whose delight is to meditate upon it day and night. You see, we are all reaping the fruits and the benefits of Christian theologians who have come before us who have meditated long and hard. See, somewhere at some point in time in Sunday school, somewhere, somebody said, you God is a trinity. Lucky you. You know it now. But that was only understood as a result of careful meditation. Now, I want you to go with me. Time is really starting to get away from us. I want you to go with me to Mark chapter 6 that's didactic you take a passage you look at the whole you look at the particulars you begin to chew on it you begin to meditate on it, you begin to think about it, asking all those critical questions the who the why the what the when the where you begin to soak on it you begin to ponder it now i want you to look at this this is mark chapter 6 we're going to pick it up in verse 45 this is a different passage okay this is narrative this is a story there is a spiritual truth. There are lessons. But the lessons are not going to be explicitly stated. We've got to draw it out of the narrative. Look at what it says here. Verse 45, immediately. Okay, immediately. That means something is happening right after something else. Context matters. We've got to look back at the previous section. What comes before? The miracle that's recorded in all of the Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. It says there were 5,000 men. We know that men... Routinely travel with their women and their children. So there could be anywhere upwards of 10, 12, 15,000 people. Jesus has fed 15,000 people with a couple of fish, a couple of pieces of bread. That's awesome. Only God can do that. So following the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, something's about to happen. Context matters. The story is moving along. Immediately, he made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. That answers one question. What crowd is he dismissing? The crowd he just fed. What's he doing? He's sending them across the sea of Galilee. We would know that if we if we looked at elsewhere if we had time to chew it through. There are They're in Galilee. He sends them across. They get in a boat. We're going to know as we look a little further on that this is in the middle of the night. It's about 4 a.m. It's the fourth watch. He's going to come to them. So they're departing at some point in the evening. When you come to narrative it's important for you as you look at the narrative to understand the differences between life that as they would have lived it and life as you and I would have lived it and to try and place yourself there in the story. Jesus has just performed one of the most amazing miracles possible. He's fed 10, 15000 people with basically nothing and He says to His guys, get in the boat, go across to the other side. It's at night. If You and I go boating. I have one of those, on my boat, I have one of those fancy, bright orange, signal flare guns. If I get in trouble, I shoot a flare up in the sky, somebody's going to come help me. Before I do that, if I get in trouble, I'm pulling out my iPhone, I'm making a phone call. Before I do that, I'm making sure I've got, you know, my GPS, I've got my life jackets all on the boat there. If the engine breaks down, I've got a paddle, I can paddle it. I've got triple and quadruple redundancy all throughout my boat. I say this to you because I want to invite you out sometime with me on my boat, and I want you to feel comfortable. Okay? I live in the 21st century where I've got Coast Guard, I've got life jackets, I've got iPhones. These guys don't have any of that. There are no life jackets. The idea of a flotation device is a completely foreign concept to a guy like Peter. You're going out on the ocean, you're going to make it based on your own ability to swim. Okay, So you're trusting in that boat. Jesus sends them across. And it's important for you to understand these details. Because what happens next is critical. He's just fed the 5,000. He sends them across. Look at what the text says. Verse 46, And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. That's important, and we could spend a while just meditating on the fact that the God of the universe is praying. We go on. Verse 40, uh, verse 47, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, again, that's about 4 a.m., it's between 3 and 6, you know, somewhere between 3 and 6, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, Jesus has just fed 5,000, and immediately he sends them away. He wants to go pray. They don't have GPS. They don't have flotation devices. They don't have any kind of emergency saving equipment. They're in the midst of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. They're terrified. Jesus makes the statement. He sees them. The Scripture says He sees them making headway painfully. That's a bit of an understatement. They're terrified. And He's going to go walking right on up to them on the water in the midst of a storm. Just picture yourself there in the moment. If you saw somebody walk, just walking on the water like it's land, you're terrified out of your wit's end. There's no backup plan. There's no plan B. And there's a guy just walking across the water. They're going to freak out and they're going to be terrified. They're going to think it's a ghost. You and I are going to be tempted to think that they're ridiculous. But honestly, if you put yourself there in that situation with the same lack of life jackets and emergency equipment, You'd be terrified and you wouldn't want to believe it either if you saw somebody just go walking across the ocean in front of you. You're not going to believe it either. Sure enough, Jesus... And look at what it says. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. We're all terrified. We're in this boat. There's no life jacket. And Jesus is just like, hey guys. And He's just going to keep on going. It's like, wait a second. What are you doing? They're terrified. The text... If it were me, I'd be like, hey man, show me how you, how are you doing that, walking on the water? We could use that right about now. They think it's a ghost, which honestly is what we would think too. We're not going to believe our eyes. We're not going to actually think that there's a man walking on the water. I mean, that's the honest truth. We're terrified of our, of dying, and that fear has so gripped us now that we're convinced we're seeing things. Or, there's ghosts out there. And the text says that that's what they concluded. Verse 49, When they saw Him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, but they all saw Him, and they were terrified. They were gripped with fear. Which honestly, you and I would be too. Now, let's begin to draw some of the amazing truths out of this narrative. If you and I are in the place of the disciples, we're feeling everything they're feeling. We're terrified. We're terrified of the ocean, we're terrified of the storm, we're terrified of Christ walking on the water as he's going past us. What does God say to us in our darkest fears? What does he say to them? Immediately he spoke to them and he said, "Take heart. It's it is I. Do not be afraid." Number 1, take heart take courage. It's me. They know him. He knows that they know him. Because it's me. Take heart. It's me. Number two. And then the negative of the the first half was a positive. Take heart. It's me. The third statement that he makes is the opposite of the first statement, but it's from the negative. Positive is take heart. The negative is don't be afraid. So Jesus is... Encouraging them. He's reassuring them. He's speaking to them in their darkest fears. It's Jesus. Verse 51, He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000, but their hearts were hardened. Now, is it explicitly stated to us, hey, you need to be careful against having a hard heart and being reluctant to trust in Jesus. Is that explicitly stated? No. But can we obviously draw that truth out of the narrative? Absolutely. The passage speaks to the fact that God wants to be our calming presence in our lives in the midst of those things which absolutely terrify us. He wants to be the calming presence That reassures us. We draw hope. We draw encouragement. We draw comfort. We draw strength from Him. The issue isn't can Jesus be somebody we can rely upon in the midst of a storm. The issue is are our hearts hardened? Do we have the capacity to actually hope and have faith in Him? Is any of that explicitly stated? No. Is it all there for us to see if we will meditate upon it? Absolutely. So, as our time comes to a close this evening, the psalmist says that blessedness comes to us if we will meditate on the Word. Meditation is a little different. It's a lot different than just study. As we conclude tonight, I want to warn you against the dangers of Bible study, head knowledge, the exclusion of allowing it to impact your heart. See, the Pharisees and the the scribes and the Sadducees, the religious elite of Jesus' day, they knew their Bible. They had all kinds of head knowledge. They could have picked it apart. They could have told you how many verses were in the book of Deuteronomy. They could have told you all kinds of different minutia and trivia about the Scriptures. And at the end of the day, their heart was not impacted by the truth that they knew. Richard Baxter, Puritan, makes a statement. He puts it perfectly when he says, Meditation is distinguished from the study of the Word, wherein the principal aim is simply to learn the truth of the Scriptures. And it's also distinguished from prayer, in which God Himself is the immediate object at the forefront of our minds. Meditation is taking the truth of Scripture and affecting our own hearts and minds with love, delight, and humility toward the things contained therein. Anybody can study. But what the Scriptures are calling us to do is to take the Word, to study it, that we can understand it, but then to allow it to so saturate us that our hearts and our minds are affected by it. That takes a bit of time, which is my last point. Did you notice that David, as he's writing Psalm 1, did not say, you just do a quick five-minute devo, say a little prayer, and you're on your way? No, no, no. He makes a statement, his delight is in the law of God, and on his law, he meditates day and night everything I've said to you tonight might sound really good and you're like, wow, I wish I could just whip that out in five seconds. No, I actually took all week to prepare my remarks for tonight. I chose two separate sections of Scripture and I took quite a bit of time to pull it all together. It looks easy, but I assure you it's not. It's not as easy as as it might come across looking. It requires time. It requires hours in the day. It requires you having to reprioritize how you spend your time. The blessed man, the happy man, who stays fruitful despite whatever the external circumstances look like, is the man who has meditated and has made the meditation of the word his practice day and night. Now I understand we all have to work, we all have jobs we have to get to, we all have things that clamor for our time and our attention. Those are things that we have to attend to. But the Word of God is our comfort, it's our source of strength, and ultimately, as Psalm 1 makes clear, it's our salvation. Understanding this Father who loves us and sent His Son to die for us. That has to be the focus of our hearts. So my encouragement to you would be to take a section of Scripture, a pericope, as I said earlier. That's that's why you sent me to seminary. That's what I learned there. Take that section, chew through it. You're going to have to set aside time, preferably in the morning, before the day begins. Don't rush it. Give yourself a good bit of time. Give yourself an hour. An hour. Look at it. Think about it. Read it. Ask questions. Journal. Put it away when it's time to go to work and be on your way, but be thinking about it all day long in the spare moments that you have for free thought. Why? Why, Clay Camp? Why do I do that? Because the psalmist is saying you are blessed by God, if you will. How does our hymnal close? Have you ever looked at the very last hymn? Go ahead, turn with me. It's 571, hymn 571. This is the last one. Do you know what it says at the very end? Oh man, it's 572. Well, I should have looked more closely. That's okay, they work together. I can go either way. 571. Happy am I. We come to the end of our hymnal And the the singer, you and I, as we're singing, happy is another word for blessed. Look at what it says here. Happy am I. Jesus is mine forever. Never to leave. Always in each endeavor. We've got Jesus. I had planned to close with 571, but I see that I made a mistake. It's 572. So I'm winging it now. He keeps me singing. Well, there you go. It fits perfectly. That's the Lord. He's making up for my shortcomings as a preacher. You see, when we meditate on the Lord, when we make it our aim to think God's thoughts after He has spoken them in His Word, when we make it our aim to saturate ourselves with the Word, the promise is that Jesus is coming back for His people. He will keep us singing for all eternity. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love You. We thank You for this time together this evening. Father, for those of us who are new to the Christian life that are here with us this evening, I pray, God, for those, those younger brothers and sisters of mine whom I love so much. I pray, God, that they would draw nourishment from Your Word, that they would meditate upon it day and night. Lord, I pray that this simple time of teaching this evening on how to do that has been an encouragement to them. Father, I pray, God, that it's been a useful reminder for my older brothers and sisters here tonight. Lord, I pray, God, that You would draw us all together that we would be a blessing and that we would edify each other as we together meditate upon your word. Father, let your word be powerful and effective. God, we pray that it would accomplish all that you have purposed it to accomplish in our hearts, in our lives, and in this world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.